Very nice singing. I invite you to open your Bible, please, to the book of Revelation and chapter number two. Is ready? Okay, okay, okay. Revelation chapter two. We will be looking this evening at the church at Pergamos. The church at Pergamos. We've looked at uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, and now Pergamos, the third letter of the seven letters to the seven churches. Okay, let's pray one more time. Loving Heavenly Father, help us to understand. There's so many things we don't understand. Father, that's so very true. We thank you for the Bible. And there's so many things that we can understand. And we do rejoice in the truth. Lord, please help us to examine a little bit further this wonderful book of Revelation and the church at Pergamos and help us to understand its implication, its application to our hearts and lives. And again, we ask that you'd please warm our hearts, Lord, to you and to your book and prepare us for prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've made this comment before, we make it again, that it appears that as we look over our shoulder down the last 2,000 years, that the church uh, history of, uh, of those 2,000 years seems to be, you can divide it up into about seven sections. The first section would be the first century up into 100 AD. And the uh, church at Ephesus seems to picture that. Uh, a lot of great works going on, but by the time you come up to about 100 AD, the uh, third generation, perhaps, of Christians is now on the scene, and it's a little bit of a different situation. Usually when um, the first generation gets saved, these people are on fire for the Lord, they love the Lord, and great things are happening, and missionaries sent out, and wonderful works and then their children grow up. The second generation takes over. And uh, maybe not quite as much zeal. Maybe it expands a bit more. Maybe gets a little bit more um, management and controls in place and so on. Then their children grow up. And oftentimes those are the ones that uh, change things. Uh, it's that way often in business. A man will start a business and it'll go great guns and it'll grow and expand and so on. His son will uh, grow up uh, with some of the, uh, the zeal of his, his father and sort of take things over. Maybe he's gone to university for a number of years and gotten business degrees and law degrees and so on. He comes and sort of adds a new flavor to it and he's, he'll sort of manage things more. But then his son grows up essentially in the lap of luxury. And um, oftentimes he's the one that takes over and kills the business. Um, that's what happened to Eaton's. Eaton's um, didn't survive that many generations, really. And it was uh, pretty much down to the third generation that was really starting to, uh, to kill the business off. Well, we uh, may have something like that uh, pictured for us in the first century. By the time we get to 100 AD, now things are pretty much uh, business as usual, but... Um, the love for Jesus seems to have petered out a bit. And so that's the lesson. Um, in the next couple of hundred years, from 100 to 312, 
approximately. We have the Church of Smyrna pictured, and that was the suffering church. And there was much suffering. That's what we dealt with last Wednesday. And the message being not, not to be afraid of suffering. Suffering um, can be very good for us. Uh, so it's something that we're, no one loves to suffer. But if it comes, if it happens, then uh, not to fear it. Well, tonight we get to the uh, Church of Pergamos. And you'll notice in verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos. So uh, the word Pergamos means a mixed marriage. That's what it means, a mixed marriage. I believe that the message here is not to be unequally yoked, not to be mixed up with things we shouldn't be mixed with. There's only six verses here from 12 to 17. And I've got a couple of slides to show you. Boom, Revelation. All right, let's see here. The city of Pergamos, or Pergamum, as it's also known, uh, was about 25 miles north of Smyrna, 75 miles north of Ephesus. <clears throat> the city or the area there, it's now called Bergamo. It was a huge city, and it was really given over to idolatry and idol worship. We've got some pictures here of the ruins of it. And what you're looking at would probably be the main street. That was kind of a common way that the Romans did up their main streets. And you can see some sort of uh, ruins of a temple in the background. And look at this. This is quite something. Kind of a little bit of a theater. But uh, can you see where the people are? Right here. Like that's huge. You imagine you have thousands of people all in here, and some kind of little performance at the, down on the, on the ground going on. Well, as I mentioned, the city was really given over to idol worship. Uh, some towns were like that, and this is one of them, Pergamos. And uh, here's one of the gods that they worshipped. Anyone know who this guy is? Not Zeus. Bacchus. Bacchus, Bacchus, he was the god of what? Wine and revelry as well. He was the god of wine. You can see the grapes there. And so this guy, he was in the liquor industry. And he promoted um, liquor and lots of it. And here's another one here. And we've looked at this one. We mentioned this one last week. Remember his name? Starts with the letter A. A-S-C-L. Asclepius, right. I knew you knew Asclepius. He was a Greek hero who later became the god of healing. And he's pictured as having a tall stick with a snake wrapped around it. You see that? There's the stick and here's the snake. <laughs> Head of the snake. There he is there. Uh, that image is still used in medicine today. We get our English word scalpel that knife thing that the surgeon uses, we get our English word scalpel from Asclepius, or Asclepius, as some would pronounce it. Now, back in Pergamos, there was a large temple to the god Asclepius. And they let, here's what they would do. In the temple, they would let many, many snakes slither around on the floor inside the temple. 
whenever someone had a disease, they would go into the temple and lay on the floor of the temple. Every time the person was touched by a snake, let me see if I have. Yeah, every time a person was touched by a snake, he was supposed to get a healing touch from Asclepius. So this is a, a pillar from outside the, uh, the, the temple. Here's be the inside, some of the floor, the inside of the temple. But look, can you make it out? There's a snake. There's another one over here. This thing was adorned with snakes. Interesting. How would you like to go to your doctor? And he tells you, lay down on the floor. Oh, what are you going to do? Oh, I'll, I'll be right back. And he goes out and closes the door and a little flap opens and about 150 snakes enter the room and start slithering all around you. That's, um, that was part of their worship. So throughout the year, believe it or not, the temple floor was full of people. Full of people. What are they? They dumb? Are they retarded? What's wrong with these people? Don't they know? I'll tell you something. People would get healed. That's why the crowds grew. You know, God isn't the only one who heals. The devil can uh, make people sick and the devil can heal as well. In the book of Revelation, eventually, we're going to get to the false prophet. This guy is a real wizard and he's able to even bring life to a statue. So the devil's got powers. You know, sometimes we don't remember that. Anyhow, um, the pagan worship of Asclepius with all of those snakes, people would go in, you know, not well, and they would get slithered on by a snake and, oh, I'm, I'm better now. He would tell his family, who would tell the neighbors, and then more people would come. And throughout the year, the floor of this temple would be full of people. The pagan temple of Asclepius also had a school of medicine attached to it. And then they had one more. And this one you'll know. Who's this? Zeus. He's missing something. What's he missing? A thing in his hand there. What's it called? No. Hmm? Lightning bolt. Yeah. Zeus and his lightning bolt. He's the chief pagan god of the Greeks. His statue and altar stood at the highest part of the city. The altar was huge. It was 115 feet by 125 feet. Monster big thing. Now, uh, as far as this church goes in Pergamos, we don't know who started it. But just like we, we don't know who started the church at Smyrna, it more, more than likely was uh, Christians from Ephesus that went to Smyrna and started the church. Quite likely it was Christians that came from Ephesus and went to Pergamos and started the church there. And that, uh, that may be what happened, or perhaps not, but it makes sense. Because uh, even in the early book of Acts, we see after the persecution that the Christians left Jerusalem and they went everywhere preaching the word. And that's good. That's what us Christians are supposed to do. That's our job. Now, let's look at uh, verse number 12 again, please. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write. Now Christ 
describes himself to this church. And it's interesting the description he gives. To each of the seven churches, there's a different description given. Write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. So Christ is using the sharp sword. Remember the pagan god Asclepius and the scalpel? Maybe there's some connection there. The sharp sword of Christ is the word of God. And um, we see that if you look at verse chapter 1 and verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. There it is there. If you compare that with Hebrews 4 and verse 12, you'll find that uh, the word of God is likened unto this sharp two-edged sword. And I believe that that's exactly what it is. And the word of God is power. Um, later on in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes back to the earth, this sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, and with it, he slays all of the, the wicked. Essentially, I think what he's going to do is just look at him and say, drop dead, and boom, that's it. They'll literally drop dead. My opinion only. Um, but Christ's sword would certainly be a challenge to the sword of the Roman Empire, don't you think? They were paranoid for uh, their power. We get to verse 13, and the Lord Jesus begins speaking of what this, this church is known for. And he says here, I know thy works. And uh, that would uh, probably include their soul winning, their teaching and baptizing, their prayer meetings, uh, their helping, their serving of one another. He says, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. There's a man, an author, he's long, long gone to heaven, but his name was Alexander Hislop, and he wrote a famous book called uh, The Two Babylons. And in his book, he gives much documentation to show that Pergamos had inherited the religious mantle of ancient Babylon when Babylon fell in the days of uh, Belshazzar. Now, some people see this as a reference to the statue of Zeus. It could be. Because Zeus had his big... Take a look at his picture again there. And you can see him pictured sitting down there with his hand raised. And I don't know whatever happened to his lightning bolt. But uh, maybe he threw it. He's getting ready to grab another one. I don't know. Or someone took it out of his hand. But he's sitting down there. And uh, the Lord Jesus said to this church at Pergamos... And he said that, I, I know you even where Satan's seat is. And so because Zeus was the chief of the, all the pagan gods and he was very much worshipped, it could be a reference to, um, to Zeus because people certainly worshipped him. Um, another thought is that Satan's seat might be a reference to the cult of the uh, emperor worship because uh, the emperor was uh, worshipped. That was a part of the law. You had to do that, which made Christianity the outlaw religion because they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to worship any other god, including the emperor. Pergamos was the official Asian center of emperor worship. It was huge. So anyhow, whatever this is, the seat of Satan, whatever it is, we know that Satan loves and craves worship. The Bible refers to him as the god of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Later in the tribulation, Satan will force people to worship him through the Antichrist. 
and through the false prophet. So back to verse 13, look what he says. And thou holdest fast my name. In other words, they stayed true, folks. They stayed true to the name of Jesus only. They stayed true like Antipas. He's mentioned here in this same verse, Antipas. So Jesus says that thou, hast, um, thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. So how would they deny it? Well, the easiest way would have been to uh, offer a little pinch of incense on the altar to uh, the emperor. That was required by everyone. And so uh, apparently they didn't do this sort of thing. Now, he mentions Antipas, even, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr. History has almost nothing to say about this man Antipas, but our Lord Jesus does. And I think that uh, when we get to heaven, he's going to be uh, uh, a wonderful saint of God that we'll have the pleasure of meeting. Now, tradition says that Antipas was arrested and was burned to death. How'd they burn him to death? They, they had a, a large bronze bull that was hollow inside. And they threw him in, in there and they lit a fire underneath it. And apparently that's how he died. He was burned to death, scalded to death inside this, this uh, big bronze bull. Uh, he wasn't the only one that was put to death that way, but apparently the tradition says this is how he was, he, he was killed. Refusing to worship the emperor carried the death penalty because emperor worship was the state religion. Antipas died a martyr for publicly holding to the name of Jesus Christ and refusing to worship anyone else. You know, it's not always easy to live 100% for the Lord Jesus. I know that we're not burning people in bulls, bronze bulls here in Canada. We're not doing that. But there's other ways. There's other ways the devil has to try and shame and uh, blame and put down uh, believers or a man or woman, a Christian who wants to live 100% for the Lord. It's not always easy to hold fast to the name of the Lord Jesus and not deny the faith. There's tremendous pressure on us to compromise. Remember the name of this city in which the church was located, Pergamos, means a mixed marriage. And the idea is sort of a compromise. To stop using the King James Bible and, and start using modern uh, Bible versions, it's a pressure that we are under as a church. And of course, there are those that would shame us because of our decision to... Uh, keep using the King James Bible. And they mock us. And they, they dance around and they, they try to imitate us, saying, oh yeah, it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us. And now we're smart enough to know that the Apostle Paul didn't have the King James Bible. But they mock us and they make a ridicule of us. Uh, they'll look at our website and they'll look at our doctrinal statement and they'll, uh, they'll try to hold us up to public ridicule. This is happening. This is being done. And there are people who uh, will come to our church for uh, maybe one uh, service or even half a service and get up and walk out because we don't have a big band up here with drums and wailing guitars and you know a worship band uh, in a bunch of tight-knit uh, clothing and things. We don't, 
believe in that. We don't have that kind of thing. Don't don't think it's right. Um, and so they get up and they leave, and they'll they'll call us uh, dinosaurs and archaic and fuddy duddy and things like that. And oh, they won't last. They won't they won't survive. Yeah, well, we've been having a lot of trouble dying around here. I tell you that much. The Lord seems to be blessing, and every Sunday we're getting a very full house um, for the Lord, and our uh, missions offering is is constantly going up, and we're supporting more and more missionaries. We have another one coming this Sunday and another one coming the following Sunday. Hallelujah. So God looks after his own. But uh, there's always pressure um, on Christians, on churches, but the Lord honors those who will stand for him like he's honored Antipas. Now here in verse 14, the Lord Jesus now tells them what he's not proud of. He says, but I have a few things against thee. Here's where the mixture comes in. Now, the smartest thing I think Satan has ever done uh, against our churches is to mix the church with the world. To mix the church with the world. That's one of the smartest things that Satan has done. Persecution, it seems, over the last 2,000 years, persecution seems to have made the church grow. But worldliness makes it die. That's what's killing the churches, is the mixture with the world. It's making them grow. A number of years ago, um, out of this uh, Saddleback uh, um, church that you've heard of, the, um, the pastor there put out a book about uh, uh, 40 days to renew your church. And... Um, a lot of uh, churches uh, and uh, young pastors were looking at this and thought it was a great idea because look how fast uh, uh, he's growing and he's got the crowds and he's got the money and all that. And so uh, they read the book and they tried it. And uh, you do hear of a few churches that changed from being conservative and Bible-believing and soul-winning and missions-minded and so on, changing to become this emergent sort of church and they seem to be growing they have hundreds attend they have thousands attend but what you don't hear are the literally thousands of other churches that have died because of this that tried to make the change and died and what they did was they offended their um, uh, the the people in the church the ones that had been there from day one and helped build the church they offended these people and when they brought in their rock music and so on and so these people left and with them went all of the offerings as well. And it wasn't long before they faced foreclosure, bankruptcy or something. And what you don't hear of is all of the churches that have been hit with this thing, this wave coming out of this Saddleback um, uh, movement, this church. Well, um, maybe you've heard it, maybe by another name, the purpose-driven. Purpose-driven, yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. That's caused so much damage. Unbelievable amount of damage. I wouldn't want to be in that man's shoes when he has to stand before God one day. Uh, he's gone on to do some other wild things that, oh, uh, that's just between him and God. Well, it seems, as I say, the smartest thing that the devil's ever done is to try and mix the church with worldliness. And so in verse 14, he says, I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine 
of Balaam. So that church had this, this doctrine. What was it? Here it is. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And here it was. To eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. You might want to jot down Numbers chapter 25. You can look it up later. Numbers 25 is where you can find this. It was a real sad day in Israel's history. It was really sad. Um, this fellow, um, uh, Balaam. Well, while faithful people like Antipas died for refusing to worship the emperor, others in the church at Pergamos were holding to and promoting the doctrine of Balaam. And not only that, but also in verse 15, and we'll get to it, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And so we sometimes laugh at uh, these people who gave themselves over to study and practice the heathen, um, pagan kind of uh, religions. And we laugh at them and, and think that, um, that they're sort of out of their minds, which maybe they are. But the truth is, these people were tapping into spiritual principles and the devil was blessing them, and they were starting to get results by using them. That's why people uh, go after uh, these uh, strange uh, idols and uh, pagan things. Now, Satan, of course, got their eyes off of the Lord by giving them false information and uh, encouraging them that this was all right. Now, Balaam, who was Balaam? He was a religious man who understood spiritual things. He wasn't saved. He didn't really love the Lord, but he understood. And he was easily bought. He knew he couldn't curse Israel. He wasn't able to do that. It was the Moabite king, Balak, that wanted to overcome Israel. And he hired Balaam to come and curse them so we could kill them in battle. And Balaam wasn't able to do that. He, he, he couldn't. Curse them. God wouldn't let them curse the, the children of Israel. So instead, Balak taught, Balaam taught um, uh, Balak, the king, to overcome them by seducing them with sex. And soon Israel was not only involved in fornication, but they were soon involved in idolatrous practices. And the two seemed to go together. The heathen Gentiles in Pergamos practiced these same two things, fornication and idolatry. And some of the Gentile Christians in that church at Pergamos seemed to be involved with those same wicked things because there were people in the church that held to the doctrine of Balaam. And that's the doctrine is, is explained in verse 14, what it is about eating things sacrificed to idols, which is idol worship. And... Uh, to commit fornication. Now fornication and adultery too, by the way, we'll throw that in there, will always weaken a Christian. Not sometimes, always weaken a Christian. And there's, this world today is so filled with fornication and with adultery, it's almost impossible to escape it. Advertising is often laced with uh, pornographic images and suggestive titles 
and words and music and things that really promote sensuality. It's just a miserable world we live in. Um, I wonder if the Lord tarries is coming, what it's going to be like for the kids growing up 20 years from now. I wonder what they're going to have to go through. Already, the schools, I think, are just infected with uh, fornication, with drugs, with violence. Uh, this is our school system. Well, I'm not here to talk about the school system, but I do want to point this out, that fornication and adultery will always lead a Christian the wrong way. Uh, any Christian, man or woman, who gets involved with these things, fornication or adultery, will eventually start doing other things that they promised they would never do. Fornication and adultery is so prevalent, and it's coming at us all the time, all the time, and we have to be on guard. We have to spend time with the Lord. We have to maintain a walk with Him. Um, so Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. Yet look what happened to him. He got involved with fornication and adultery, really. And after a period of time, it all let loose. And he got involved with idolatry after that. And his whole life was a shipwreck. What an unbelievable tragedy this fella ended up living. So um, we come to verse 15, and this is the second of the, the two things here. The second one here is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And so he says, um, uh, he, he names it in verse 15, and he says, uh, which thing I hate. There's a few uh, theories as to what this could be. And I've shared with you, I think it was last week, um, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the twisting of the teaching of one of the first deacons of the church back in Jerusalem. Nicholas was one of the first deacons there. And... Um, they twisted his teachings so that his teachings became the eating of meats, sacrificed to idol, idols, and that fornication is okay. And this was the twisting of that. You see, they're kind of both related, aren't they? The doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And we, today we've got all kinds of people, a world full of people, who see nothing wrong at all with fornication, Sex before marriage, sex out of marriage, the nothing wrong with adultery, wife swapping, all kinds of horrible things. They see nothing wrong with it. We won't turn there, but back in Acts chapter 15, they held what was known as the Jerusalem Council. And this was essentially to determine if these non-Jews, the Gentiles, could truly actually be saved, even though they weren't keeping the laws of Moses. And they examined these uh, Gentiles, their testimony, their faith, and the evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in their life. And they realized that these Gentiles who were, that were professing Christ and a love for Christ had the Holy Spirit inside them. And that was the final clincher that proved it, that they were saved. By the way, the SDAs today, the Seventh-day Adventists, essentially are teaching that they are the one true remnant church. Out of all the churches of the world, they are the one true ones because no one else uh, has their doctrine 
and no one else is worshiping on Saturday. That's why they call themselves the Seventh Day Adventists. Okay? So that means the rest of us are probably just, you know, second, second-hand potatoes. We're not going to make it. You know, we're not part of them, part of the one true remnant church. Now, I also have to hasten to say the Seventh-day Adventist is a mixed bag because you do have saved people involved with that, but you have a lot of unsaved people too. And Ellen G. White, which no relation to me at all, Ellen G. White was the real powerhouse behind the SDAs, and she taught that uh, observing the seventh day had you know, all the blessings of God, and it was the key and everything like that. And so basically what they're doing is putting their people under law. Acts chapter 15, the apostles recognized that these Gentiles were saved and not under the law of Moses. And so they wrote a letter. And that letter in Acts chapter 15, you can go later and read it, sent to all the churches. And in it, they said, all we do is ask that you observe these four things. Number one, Stay away from idols. Number two, stay away from fornication. <clears throat> Number three, stay away from blood. Don't be drinking the blood. Number four, stay away from things strangled. So you can read that at your leisure, but the two that I want you to take notice of, idolatry, fornication. And that was laid down. You can't be involved in those things. We have some Christians today that feel that they're liberated, that they think they can do just whatever they want. And so they're very much involved with the things of the world and smoking and drinking and marijuana. And they say, all this is fine. We're not under law. We're under grace. We can do all these things. Some of them even go even further and say that it's all right to have meaningful relationships outside of marriage. They, they don't call it adultery. They don't call it fornication. They call it something else. But at the end of the day, that's what it is. I mean, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, if it sounds like a duck and looks like a duck and smells like a duck, it's probably a duck. And so these two bad doctrines, some of the people at the church at Pergamos were holding to these doctrines. And Jesus could see it. And he pointed it right out at them. Now, the bottom line here seems very clear. Mixing the world and the church. That's what Satan's trick is. Back in about the 1920s, something like that, there was a big uh, division amongst Christians over what was uh, important and what was not important in the Word of God. And so that's when it became a big debate amongst Christians in America, uh, amongst Christians also in Europe, and they came up with essentially the five fundamentals of the faith. The, the basics of the faith. The Bible's the Word of God. Jesus, you know, is God of very God. He's the Son of God. And, you know, the cross and, and uh, salvation. They came up with five verities of the faith. Those who held to these five verities of the faith, these five fundamentals of the faith, were known as fundamentalists. And then the others were known as liberal. You say, well, who gave them that title? They gave it to them themselves. 
They loved that. Who named the conservative party the conservatives? The conservatives. Who named the liberal party the liberals? The liberals. Who named the theological liberals the liberals? The liberals did. Who named the, the uh, theological fundamentalists? Fundamentalists. The fundamentalists did. They chose these labels themselves. Well, that made the main division. And essentially, if you didn't believe that you know, Christ was the Savior and that you needed to be saved, you're not, even, you're not saved. You're part of this liberal camp, the liberal theology. And if you believed in Christ and salvation, as we understand it, you were saved and then you were considered part of the fundamental camp. Well, that was fine for a number of years down to about the 1950s. And then a guy named Akengay, he spearheaded a movement. You see, by this time, the second generation had come along from the 20s to the 50s. And now this new generation felt that the, uh, the old generation was a little bit too straight-laced, just a little bit too stick-in-the-mud, a little bit too conservative. They want to be a little looser. And so what they did was they moved toward the world. Oh, they still maintained a teaching in salvation. They still maintained Jesus is God and the Bible is the Word of God. But when it comes to standards they moved closer to the world. And so they called themselves the new evangelicals. And that was the, the term they gave themselves, the new evangelicals. And essentially what they did was they took a little bit of the world and mixed with their, their lifestyle and their theology. Well, they still wouldn't allow, when the rock and rollers came knocking on the doors, can we come and perform in your churches? The new evangelicals still had enough common sense to say, no, you can't. Well, anyhow, the next generation comes along. And by the time you get into about the, uh, the late 70s now, now it's very common. Now this group has taken another step even further. They said the, the new evangelicals are a little bit too straight-laced for us. You know, a little bit too stick in the mud we want to loosen up a little bit. And so they did. And then they started calling themselves the young evangelicals. They came up with a whole new label for themselves. And that's the way it's always been. Essentially, it's a mixture of the world with the church. That's what we've got here. That's the message here that Jesus is giving to the churches. And it comes clear as a bell to the church at Pergamos. Jesus said two times in the Gospel of John, once in chapter 15, he said, If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. It's only natural that the world and the believer have no relationship together because the world hates the believer. Then in John chapter 17, Jesus said, I have given them thy word and uh, the word, the world hated, hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This is Jesus speaking. He's praying to his father. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So twice here, the Lord Jesus says that the world hates the believer because the believer is not of the world. The world does not want to come into union with Christ. 
Satan does not want to ally himself with Jesus Christ. And today there's a general idea among many churches that they need to blend into the world. They say we need to look like them. We need to sound like them in order to attract them to Jesus. These churches have taught themselves that it's okay to mix with the world. We've got this new emergent kind of church happening today. They take, um, some of them were Baptist churches. They got to get rid of that word Baptist. Get that off of there. Just call themselves, uh, sometimes they call themselves a community church. But then there's, there are those that don't even like the word church. They get rid of the word church. And they call themselves um, the meeting room. Or um, the uh, 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 relate or elevation. They use words like that. They don't, they don't even call themselves a church anymore. All in their attempts to mimic the world, to get the world to come in. Well, listen, if you get a, a whole church full of the world, you know what you've got? A worldly church. You can uh, invite all of the pigs you want into the sheepfold, but unless they somehow can become sheep, you're, you're going to turn your sheepfold into a pig pen. That is what happens. A good analogy is a man that had a dirt pile out in the back of his house, and he hated that dirt pile because it was dirty. And so he had a brilliant idea, and he found and put on some beautiful white linen gloves, absolutely perfect. The kind that the inspector would put on and, and look for dust, you know, in, in little places. This beautiful pair of white linen gloves. And his idea was to go out now with these gloves on and go out there and play in the dirt. Thinking that the dirt will become glovey. But that's not what happens, is it? The dirt never becomes glovey. What happens? The gloves become dirty. That's what happens. And I'm afraid that's what happens in church after church after church after church. And boy, can you ever see the sad results. And so these churches, they dress down on purpose. They bring in the world's music, the rock music, the rap, the country line dancing. They've taken away hymns like Sweet Hour of Prayer, Rock of Ages, Old Rugged Cross. They've replaced them with songs like this, Mystery. Enough. Alabaster jar. I don't want to go. One more song for you. That last one in particular, it's very reminiscent of what they call crossover music. Because you don't know if they're singing about the Lord or if they're singing about their girlfriend. You don't know because they don't even mention Jesus in, in a lot of the songs. Um, these things are all made popular by the latest male and female recording artists and contemporary Christian rock bands. You know, a lot of this has really come out of a church called Hillsong in Australia. That thing is a joke that has really gone off the deep end. Hillsong. So the emphasis in many of these churches is no longer to reach the lost and live a pure life. The emphasis in many of these churches is feel good and do your own thing. 
Why do Christians compromise? Why do they do it? Christians compromise because they think it will get them ahead. They think it will benefit them. They'll get ahead in life. That's the devil's lie. Don't compromise your standard. Hang in there. You will be rewarded. The Bible tells us that we're to dress ourselves modestly and we're to live conservatively. God shows us in the Bible the difference between God honoring music and worldly music. And God urges us in the Bible to reach the, the lost and live a pure Christ-honoring life. That's what we find in the Bible. Now let's get back here to chapter 2 and verse 16. Christ now warns them what will happen if they don't repent. So he says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So he says, repent, or I will come unto thee quickly. This is not the rapture. He's not talking about the rapture at all. Because notice he says that he'll fight against them. That's not going to happen in the rapture. No, instead, what he's talking about is, is uh, judgment. And he will bring chastening into their lives. Uh, thing, and these things can happen very quickly. Things that should be strong can become very weak and fall apart. And this can happen in a Christian's life or in a church's life. And churches that get involved with the wrong kind of stuff, listen, don't cry too much. You know, if you sow the wrong seed, if you get the wrong harvest. Does that make sense? Because you reap what you sow. The computer people used to say, garbage in, garbage out. And very much this is true when it comes to spiritual things. And so if we compromise, if we sell out our standards, if we mix ourselves with the world, you know, it'll happen. It'll happen one day and it'll happen very quickly. Things that ought to be strong can fall apart. Families can fall apart. Churches can fall apart. Health can fall apart. Jobs can fall apart. Security can fall apart. All those savings can fall apart. Everything that you, you prized and, and compromised in order to get, you can lose very, very quickly. Anyone can. So he says here, um, he'll use the sword of his mouth. That's the word of God. In order to cut through the mixture and separate it. We won't turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, God has this advice. He says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. People that mix with the world try to dilute the word of God and lower its doctrinal standards. The new Bible versions don't make the, God, don't make the word of God any stronger. The new Bible versions make the, the doctrines of the Word of God that much weaker. Uh, we thought it was crazy when they came out with the New International Version, which is aimed at a grade 3 reading level. Grade 3 reading level. Your King James Bible is at a grade 8 reading level, according to the flesh Kincaid reading uh, 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 system. They, they rate these things. It's at a grade 8. Um... Then they found that grade 3 NIV was too complicated for some people. And so they dumbed it down even more. How much more can you dumb down the Word of God? So you go to a university to be a brain surgeon. And you're reading the textbooks and you say, Teacher, I don't understand these textbooks. 
Oh, you poor thing. Here, that's too complicated for you. Take this comic book. It's much more on your level. You'll, you'll, you'll graduate as a nice brain surgeon. Just use these comic books. You need brain surgery and you found your brain surgeon got his teaching from comic books. Wouldn't you want to get a second opinion or go someplace else? You'd want a brain surgeon that really put in the time and toil and tears and sweat and the cost to really learn the trade. And that's what's involved with the Word of God. It, you don't learn it all in one wild weekend. You spend your whole life working away at it. Now verse 17, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So, can you hear what God is saying tonight about being mixed with the world? Can you hear it? I sure can. Can you? Speaks to my heart. Does it speak to your heart? He that hath an ear, let him hear. If you can hear, then you need to obey, and Jesus will do something special for you in eternity. In verse 17. Um, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. That's interesting. These are eternal promises. The hidden manna is really the opposite of that, those meat sacrificed to idols. It's the absolute opposite of that. Some people see this as a reference to Jesus himself. And for sure, you will find Jesus himself a deep, personal intimacy with Jesus in your prayer closet. But again, there are many Christians in the world that don't do their prayer closet. And some it's very on again, off again. We need to be on again and stay on. So I'll give him uh, to eat of that manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth, saving he that uh, receiveth it. Now there are probably at least eight reasonable ideas of what this white stone could be. The white represents purity, righteousness, holiness. The stone represents something hard and sturdy and stable. Having one's name written thereon would suggest that the person... Um, is now immovable in righteousness. That's a nice thought, isn't it? So we have this message to this particular church at Pergamos, but it's also a message to us here today. Why? What's it all about here? Be pure in your doctrine. Be separate from the world. Because doctrine determines how you will live. If you water down your doctrine, you will live very worldly. The more you water it down, the more worldly you will become. That's why your doctrine needs to be strong. It needs to be pure. Churches sometimes start good and end up going bad. Every apostate church today started its downward slide by compromising its standards. Then it began mixing itself with the world. Then it changed its doctrine and became liberal and apostate. If you went for a walk, say, down Hastings Street, you'll notice a lot of sad examples of, of human depravity. Some of them look barely human walking along the street, shuffling along. And yet they're people. How'd they get that way? Did they, did they start that way as young people? Did they say, boy, I, I want to be a, 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 a dropout. I want to be a, a louse. I want to be a failure. I want to be a drug addict. B, I want to I be just barely hanging on to life. No one starts out that way. 
No one starts out life saying, I want to be an alcoholic bum in the ditch one day. No one starts that way. They all usually have some aspirations, but how do they end up that way? Well, for the alcoholic, maybe it began with that first drink. For the drug addict, maybe it began with that first puff of marijuana. I suppose the best way to avoid being an alcoholic is to not have that first drink. That would make sense. The best way to avoid being a drug addict is to never touch that stuff in the first place. Now I know that there may be exceptions to that. I realize that. But when you look at churches and you say, how in the world did they get like that? Well, most of them started Bible-believing, missions-minded, soul-winning, godly standards. Most of them started that way. And then things started to change. They tapered off. They cooled down. They got their eyes on the world. Well, if we just would stop doing this, we could get more people in the door. If we could just maybe get, you know, some more real good music up here on the, on the stage, we could get more people in. And that's often what, what starts it. Christians compromise because they think they're going to get ahead in life. Let me tell you a little story and we're done. True story. Happened back in 1931. Irving Thalberg of MGM decided he wanted to buy the film rights to, to Tarzan. It was in book form. He wanted to make a movie. And so Edgar Rice Burroughs was the author of Tarzan. And so Thalberg, he sent his best man to try and buy the rights. And the man's name was Sam Marks, M-A-R-X. He sent Sam Marks to negotiate with Burroughs. And he told Marks, he said, now do whatever you got to do to get the rights to that, that Tarzan book so we can make the movie. And you can offer him anything up to $100,000, but don't go over $100,000. Now back in 1931, $100,000 be worth millions of dollars today. Millions. Now this was an unheard of sum of money for uh, book rights for the movie. And so what Sam Marks did, he was a very smart negotiator. He got in touch with uh, Burroughs and um, he asked him, how much do you want for the rights to the book so we can make a movie? And Burroughs said, I want $100,000. And so Marx offered him 25000 Burroughs got up and walked out of the room. But Marx wasn't finished with Burroughs. And he kept in touch with him. And over the summertime, he kept negotiating with him. He kept negotiating and negotiating. And finally, Burroughs decided on $40,000. He sold the rights to Tarzan for $40,000. After the deal was all signed and the money was given, it was consummated, you know, it was a 100% done deal. That's when Burroughs said to Marx, he said, you know, he said, uh, to tell you the truth, uh, if you had held out, I would, have, uh, I would have given it to you for nothing. I really want that movie to be made and I want Thalberg to make the movie. I think he could really do it. And Mark said, really? 
He says, that's interesting you should say that, Mr. Burroughs, because if you had held out, you would have gotten $100,000 instead of $40,000. The moral of the story is this. Don't sell out your Christian standards. Don't sell it out. You can't possibly do better than what God can do for you. Hold on. Be faithful. Don't mix with the world. Don't sell it out. Be faithful to the Lord and He will bless and reward you. Let's pray together.